Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 40, with John Contino. Episode 40 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at the Adam Martin on Twitter. Today on the podcast, our guest is a man of many talents, a creative director, illustrator, designer, and perhaps most notably, a hand letterer. He runs his own independent design studio in upstate New York, where he has worked with some of the world's top agencies and brands, including Nike, IBM, Coca-Cola, and in the sports world, ESPN, the magazine, Sports Illustrated, and many, war- many more. He is also the co-founder and creative director of CXXVI Clothing Company, in addition to running his own menswear and accessories company, Contino Brand. Ladies and gentlemen, John Contino is with us today. Welcome to the show, John. I appreciate you taking the time to come aboard. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So I, I gave a, a brief introduction to you uh, in the intro, but I'd like to let you go a little more in depth and kind of tell the audience a little bit about your story. Can you give the listeners some insight maybe into your background and then sort of your path that maybe leads us to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, I kind of, you know, I've been doing this my whole life. Um, I started really, really young. Like as soon as I got hold of pencil, I was drawing. Um, I come from a creative family, so my mom, my grandmother, my dad, everyone was very um, uh, supportive of me just drawing and just being a creative person. So it was kind of cool to grow up in that environment. Um, and my, between my mom and my grandmother, I learned a lot about drawing, illustrating, uh, lettering. You know, my, my, parent, my, my mom and my grandmother taught me calligraphy when I was about five or six, I think. So uh, I, was, I was learning really, really young. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my main things that I was obsessed with as a kid was just drawing sports logos constantly. So... I mean, you're talking drawing the Yankees logo, drawing the Mets logo, Jets, Giants, Islanders, Rangers, Knicks, Nets, you know, everything that was local, I was drawing over and over and over again. And I was so obsessed with it. Um, And then, you know, then movies and music started to get involved. And I really started to get into, you know, logos from movies. Like I used to draw the Ghostbusters logo over and over again because that was huge when I was a kid. Um... And, uh, you know, eventually I got a little bit older. I got into the hardcore scene and playing in bands. And, uh, you know, I found a new use for my for my talents as, as an artist, which I never really thought had any use besides just, like, drawing stuff for people that asked me to draw stuff for them. Um, so, you know, I, I started getting into band logos. I started getting into record layouts and T-shirt designs and uh, flyer designs and posters and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, you know, from there, I kind of realized that it could be it could be a job, um, and I started charging people for it. So, you know, here and there, you know, I'd make a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, um, and by the time I was about fourteen or fifteen, I was doing uh, album layouts for bands. I was doing you know websites and stuff for local companies, and I was really starting to flourish as a, a independent designer. Um, so <laughs> that was one of my first jobs was being a freelance designer, just kind of just kind of happened. I didn't even know it was a thing. 
And yeah, you started out young. Oh, man. real young. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm 32 now, and I'm I'm going on like 18 years experience. So it's uh, it's pretty crazy, you know. I mean, all through college, I freelanced all through college. My my teachers were really great. They, uh, I, you know, I kind of thought that I needed a degree to get a job, but right. knowing, knowing what I know now, I probably could have just kept doing what I was doing and been the same place I am now. But you know, when you're in college, there's a lot of other kind of intangible things that, that you kind of get out of it, the way, you know, relationships and certain certain things that you might not experience just by being an independent on your own. So I got a lot of that too. And, uh, you know, right out of school, I just I just started freelancing and then I kind of bounced around at a couple agencies um, and opened up my own studio in 2005. And uh, I've been on my own ever since. And that's kind of, that's, that's where I'm at now. That was 10 years ago. So um, that's... Yeah, that's very cool, man. That's, <laughs> that's, that's uh, you, you kind of have a, a bit of an entrepreneurial swagger, I guess. I, was that something that your family had growing up or like, was there anybody in your family that was an entrepreneur that sort of made you think I want to work for myself? Yeah, well, you know what it was is especially in high school and college, I worked with my dad. My dad was a contractor. So, um, you know, I learned a lot about carpentry and stuff like that, but I also learned about running my own business. Um, I used to watch his every move, you know, and just like kind of really analyze the way he spoke to people and the way he, uh, um, you know, handled his business and, and schedule things and what he would charge for stuff. And, you know, just, just the way he would run his day to day. And, you know, I think I get a lot of that from him and especially my work ethic. Cause I, I remember as a kid, my dad was always working, you know, trying to give us a better life and stuff. So, um, yeah. I, I do that now for, you know, for my family and I'm just, it's just, I guess it's in my blood, you know? So, uh, it definitely, it, you know, I was I was having a conversation with my brother too, and I was telling him how busy it gets sometimes, and sometimes it gets really stressful. And he was like, he's like, dude, you need a hobby. And and I said to him, I was like, I was like, yeah, but every time I make a hobby, you know, every time I find a hobby, I make a business out of it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's that's the blessing and the curse of this stuff. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so so I've obviously I've read a lot about you, and and many people know about you because interviewed everywhere you're no stranger to podcasting and interviews and that type of thing i read that there was a point in your path where you were residing in brooklyn and you're doing a lot of local and maybe not so much well-known work and someone asked you what do you what do you do for a living and you responded that you're a graphic designer and and the person then asked another question and they basically said well is there anything that you've done that i can recognize and i know that that seemed to be a real reflection point in your career can you talk about that moment and then what you did immediately after making moves to try to get known in this saturated creative world yeah i mean that that was definitely that was definitely a pivot point for me and and that was actually um well i still lived in long island too so i was even i was even younger than that part of my move uh into brooklyn was just kind of to immerse myself a little bit more in in the people that I was really working with. A lot of times, you know, I, I grew up in Long Island, not too far from Manhattan in general. And I never really, you know, it's like a lot of people, a lot of people I grew up with, their, their parents and everybody all worked in Manhattan. So it's just a matter of hopping on the train and you're there. So I, I never really thought of actually, you know, living directly in the city because I was close enough. I, you know, I, I had plenty of jobs and stuff that I would, you know, take the train in and out or drive in and out and get it done. But there was there was a little something about kind of moving in there and just and just kind of getting in the thick of things and and being shoulder to shoulder with my competition that really kind of um, gave me a little bit of a kick in the ass. But that particular story, um, I I hadn't even 
you know, I, I was still living with my parents at the time. I was still pretty young in my early twenties. And, um, you know, I met this, I met this girl at a, at a friend's party and she, she told me she lived around the block from me and I had never seen her before. And, uh, we had this conversation, which was like five minutes. It was nothing conversation, you know, and instantly sent me down like this hole of, of what am I doing with my life? How come I'm not, you know, <laughs> where I should be somewhere else by now, you know? And, uh, it, uh, it, it was uh, an interesting thing to hear because this person who seemingly was only 100 feet away from me every day, I've never seen before and I never saw after that. So there's a little something weird about that that struck me as like, maybe this is some kind of sign. Maybe I have to kind of do something different and, and just figure out a way to, to, to give myself the type of life that I've always wanted. So I, I went from, you know, doing what I thought was a lot of work and hustling uh, to really turning it up and and just kind of going after everything that I could and just trying to make myself better in every way. Um, and it really, it was definitely a huge turning point. You know, I definitely kind of uh, uh, found my way into the uh, the world that I live in now, which is kind of the 150% never stop 24-7, 365 kind of lifestyle. And uh you know, it's 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 nice. You need someone or you need something like that to kind of happen to you, I think, sometimes in order for you to really understand that what you're doing may not be living up to the potential that you expect yourself to be. Yeah, no doubt, man. And now were you were there any designers or or brands or anything that you sort of followed at the time? Because I know when I was younger, I didn't pay attention to anything. Like we didn't have this whole social, I'm 32 as well, and we yeah. didn't have this whole social, no. you know, <laughs> dribble, whatever, like let's see who the, who's the hot designers in the world <laughs> like then. We really did if you had anybody. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, everything that I was really into then um, was, was pretty much related to hardcore records at the time. So, um, you know, Derek Hess was like a huge influence to me and um, – this guy whose name I, 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 I never remember his last name, but his name was Ken. And he used to do a lot of artwork for Victory Records compilations. And he was a really cool illustrator. So a lot of these guys that I would see on, you know, you know, band CDs or on T-shirts and stuff, that was my only exposure to more contemporary design. Um, so that's kind of – those are the kind of guys I followed. And they all had like pretty basic websites and stuff because you're talking like late 90s, um, early 2000s at, at best – so I mean, right. social networking was uh, was far away at that point from really developing. So everything else was just like if you had kind of a website or some kind of AOL website. I don't know. You know, it was like one of those types of things. It was very rough. So um, there were some guys there, and and I mean, you know, just random bookstore stuff. I became really into Ralph Steadman, um, and then I, I had a bunch of uh, these old these old um, sign painter books that my grandmother and my mom gave to me that I was, I was pretty into. So, uh, that's kind of all we had, you know, I, it was just finding it on your own. And that's, that's where, that's, that's kind of where I derived a lot of my inspiration from around that time. And, you know, it's cool. It's cool to see, you know, how I can still kind of reference those things to today and, and, and still grab something from it, you know? Yeah, for sure. And and like you said, I mean, we didn't really have that whole designer as celebrity culture yet. You know, you no, may no, have you may have heard of a Saul Bass or a Paul Rand, but nowhere right. near like like what it is today. No, it's it's so weird too because it's like I mean, designer. You know, the only designer that was ever a celebrity was just like a Ralph Lauren or a Calvin Klein or right, Versace right. or you know Dolce and Gabbana, like all those kinds of like act, like fashion designers from like the the 
the mid-level to the ultra-high level. But in terms of graphic design, I mean, you're right. Paul Rand, if you're lucky, Saul Bass, if you're lucky, or if you pay attention that much, you know? Yeah, yeah. So a, a year or so ago, I personally uh, moved outside of my city to a very rural area. And kind of in a weird way, I found this because outside my windows, I see and interact with farmers and blue collar workers and, <laughs> and that type of thing. It's really kind of enabled me to go into a deep focus in my work and then also really kind of look outside of my immediate locale for inspiration and communities and people to talk to. Now, I know that you made that transition as well recently in terms yeah. of moving to rural upstate New York. So I'm curious how that transition has been for you professionally and would you also say that it allows you to kind of go head down and, and not be so distracted to what like the city has to offer? I mean, I was honestly terrified to do it. And it's the funny thing is it's only an hour outside of Manhattan too. So it's not like, it's not like I'm moving into, you know, uh, the Midwest. Somewhere, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, it's not that like everyone in my neighborhood is still commuters to, to the city, you know? So it's, it's not even like I'm that far away, but I was still scared because I, you know, I, I always took so much, from the city for inspiration that I felt like if I was going to leave it, it might take a part of me away, you know, but, um, the first, the first time I left after we had moved up here and I went in to do, I did a couple of lectures. I, you know, I went to some trade shows and stuff and I, I just had like one of those busy days where I was in like meetings constantly. And it was like eight o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock at night in the middle of the summer. And, um, I remember getting in my car and driving up the West Side Highway and then onto the Palisades and watching the buildings get smaller and the trees get bigger. And I pull into my driveway and it's quiet and I just hear the breeze like blowing in the trees and stuff. And after a long day, I was just like, wow, you know what? This is kind of nice. So it's kind of, it was like, it gave me a little bit of that separation I feel like I needed in order to calm myself down from being like completely manic all the time about work. <laughs> right. And uh, so, I mean, I'm still uh, as probably more of a nut job now than I was even then, and that was only a couple of years ago. And uh, but at least now it's it's a little bit easier because if you know if I get to a certain point, I can grab my daughter and we go outside, and you know we can run around in the grass or pick leaves off the trees or something, and it automatically kind of just goes away. So it's it's just nice for a little bit of that mental clarity. Well, you mentioned your daughter, and, and I really dig how you're a family man, and you kind of keep that up. I think that's one of the blessings of sort of doing creative work that we as I'm, – I'm an independent myself, and we, we have these internet connections that we can work flexibly, flexibly from home and uh, see our kids grow. Yeah. And I, I know me personally, I've been able to take my kids to photo shoots and watch me art direct, or maybe they see me working on some custom – type with some logo and like while I'm teaching them their letters, yeah, you know, so yeah. are you, are you teaching the little one, the craft is, is she adopting <laughs> the family craft? She is, uh, I mean, <laughs> she, she's such a, she's such a special little kid. It's so funny. I mean, I could never, I could never dream that she would be as, uh, great as she is, but I, I mean, she was 10 months old and she was sitting on my lap drawing, holding a pencil as like, the same way that I hold a pencil. I mean, she wasn't even a year old yet and she was already drawing. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't doing that like kind of fist baby grip of, you know, holding a, a utensil. She actually had like her pointer finger and her thumb like holding it properly. <laughs> so she's been uh, uh, between, you know, my wife and I, we're, we're just like, you know, spilling creativity out 24-7 to her because my wife is, 
is very, she's a singer, she's into music, she's um, a great writer, and uh, she's visually, you know, her, her visual aesthetics are great too. So between the two of us, my daughter is just overloaded with creative stuff constantly, and she really, she really soaks it up, and she really kind of spits it back out in her own way. So um, she definitely has it. I mean, I don't know if it'll, where it'll take her in her life, but uh, at this point, I mean, she's always drawing, she's always singing. I'm teaching her how to play the drums. She's getting into that. Uh, she's just, she, she likes maps. <laughs> I mean, she's like, really into maps. She loves maps. Um, and it's just, it's cool to be able to see that start in its very, you know, earliest stages. And, and hopefully, you know, hopefully she, she's into it for the rest of her life and I could nurture the hell out of it, you know? Yeah, no doubt, man. And I think one thing that's cool is, is like you mentioned, nurturing it. And for me, uh, you know, when I was growing up, my grandmother was really crafty and into crafts. She was like, you know, at one point she's like weaving baskets and then she's like painting like cool things on my shirts. And like I, nice. I sort of inherited some of that from her, but there was still sort of that that mentality of just like the time period, like you got to get a job and you got to go work for somebody for 40 years. And I think what's really cool about, you know, where you are, and, and being able to raise, you know, your daughter in this way where you can push this creativity and this flexibility is she's going to grow up seeing a different kind of lifestyle um, as opposed to, like, dad having to leave for work and not, you know, dad or mom leaving for work, not have, coming back until, like, a certain time of the day. And yeah. you sort of, like, turn it off and have a beer or whatever and then, like, go and do the same thing the next day. Whereas, like, in this creative lifestyle, it's like you can do anything you want as long as you have, like, your mind and some paper and, like, an internet connection. It's true, yeah. I mean, that's all it takes, and it's... It, you know, I'm, I work constantly. So there's definitely times when my wife will just tell me, she goes like, I, I feel like I haven't seen you this week. And I'm just a f couple of feet away from them at all times too, you know? So it's, um, you know, it's still pretty crazy, but the, the, the great part about actually being able to stay here and be here is that I can turn it off whenever I want. And I can, you know, I'll, I'll break out at two o'clock in the afternoon or 11 o'clock, or I, I went to the supermarket with her this morning and we did food shopping and everything, you know, it's cool to be able to do that because if I was in a studio or if I was at an agency somewhere, I don't know if they'd ever see me, you know, if I kept up right. the way that I work, I don't, I don't know if I'd ever be around and I would hate that because to me, the most important thing in my life is my family. So if I, if I was being deprived of that, I, I don't know, I don't know what that would do to me. Yeah, no doubt, man. It's, it's crazy how those things change in our lives. A lot of creatives uh, to kind of change paths here are, are passionate about, maybe things like sport or, or just another particular niche. And they have dreams of, I don't know, just, just, just to this particular audience, designing a team brand or doing work for maybe a big consumer sports brand like yeah. a Nike or Adidas or Under Armour. But the problem is a lot of us um, and listeners to the show, myself and whoever, kind of start and you're doing these things where you're grinding away on maybe some regional hospital brand or like some <laughs> some local bank or something and you sort of solve this problem by creating your own work in the style that you wanted to create and that was even if you had to make up your own project so I'm curious can you talk a little bit about that and the benefits of doing such a thing and sort of where it led you yeah I mean it's uh one of those things like you know like you were saying I my one of my biggest passions is just sports branding in general. It's kind of, it's kind of the thing that really sucked me into design to begin with. So, um, you know, breaking into that is clearly a very difficult thing to do. So at, at one point, um, it just kind of dawned on me. I was just like, why don't I just, why don't I just do this myself? You know, I, I can still design 
sports-related stuff, and no one has to commission it. I could just do it. And if someone likes it, they like it. And if not, then I'm just getting it out of my system, and I can go on to my regular client stuff during the day. And um, it's it, it really showed that, especially with today's internet and social interaction and stuff, that um, if you put if you put that stuff out there, uh, a lot of times the right people will see it, and then you know it can turn into something real. And that's something that I never expected in a million years. But it's it's really it's really excellent to to see that if I want to put out some baseball inspired stuff, that some baseball type people will see it and say, "Hey, we want you to do this for real." I mean, that to me, it's just you know you just got to put yourself out there and just hope that someone picks up on it. And it's just a little bit easier today to do that than it was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Right, right. Now, if you've developed sort of a, a, a gritty style, which I personally am a big fan of, and I think it's kind of funny, there's almost this direct connection to your work and your New York accent. It's sort of like when you, <laughs> when you, when you meet the person behind the work, it all makes sense, right? <laughs> and, and I know that you, you, you grew up on New York hardcore music and that type of thing. So was this style of work always something that you sort of naturally had or was it something that you kind of had to work and over time to develop and refine? Yeah, it's pretty crazy when you look back. I mean, it's uh it's it's an it's an, it was never a thing that I would have called a style. It's just the way that I drew. You know, it was never anything intentional. It was just who I was. And if you look back at my old sketchbooks when I was a kid, um it doesn't, you know, like I mean, obviously it looks different, but it looks like it's something that I did. You know, like I was really obsessed with just drawing different styles of alphabets and I had pages and pages of different styles of A's and B's and C's and D's over and over and over again, all in these different ways. And it looks a lot like the stuff that I do now, you know, like just the, the height, the, the thickness of everything. I still had the same sensibilities. So um, seeing that and, and kind of seeing where I took it, um, it's just me being honest with myself. There was definitely a point in time where, you know, I had my idols that I was trying to emulate and trying to do the stuff that I thought would be really cool or the stuff that I thought would get me work or anything like that. And it, it just never felt real. It was always such a struggle to develop anything. And at some point, you know, I, I was, I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. So I kind of said, you know what, forget all this. I'm just going to do what feels right to me. Um, and I'm going to just let myself be myself, do it the way that I feel most comfortable and if people like it, great. And if not, then you know, then this isn't the this isn't the career for me. And I could always, you know, I'll you know I'll go back and work with my dad. You know, I really enjoyed doing that. And uh, you know, it would have been cool to work with my dad every day too. So it, it, I had a fallback, I had a place to go that I would have been happy with, you know. But um, if I wasn't myself, then it really wasn't worth doing. You know, I mean, I I don't I don't see why. Um, anyone would want to do something where they have to just kind of put on a mask every day and, and pretend to be something they're not. So I, I really wanted to take it and just, you know, be myself and see where it, see where it would lead me. Very cool. Now our people are, I assume most of your clients come to you and they've, they've seen your work and we want you to do this type of thing for us. Like they're hiring you for that particular look, right? Yeah. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much all that happens these days. So when you're when you're doing that type of work, and especially since sketching is is involved so much in that, how are you showing concepts to the clients? Are you kind of pushing it out a little bit and showing something digital, or are you showing sketches to them and ideas? 
I'm all I'm all about rough sketches first. Um, and and I think a lot of people from looking at my work, um, especially the people who are coming to me specifically for this or for that, and they like this or they want that, you know, they kind of already know um, in general how how the execution is going to be and how I'm going to handle it or you know whatever. Even even just by talking with me, they'll 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 really see. Um, you know, I'll paint like a picture for them where they'll kind of understand where it's going to go. And then I'll just do some rough sketches and just kind of talk them through the rough sketches. Um, and, and, you know, honestly, I just kind of tell them to trust me. <laughs> and and once we get through the sketch stage, uh, sketch stage, I'll just go straight into inking and, you know, vectorizing things and just push it right out to them. I don't, I don't dwell on anything too long because I feel like the more and more I try to perfect something – the less emotion comes from it. And it's it's one of those things that I had to, you know, let go of at some point where it's like the first the first marks I always put on the page were always the most expressive. And every time I tried to duplicate it, it just felt more and more derived from something that wasn't as emotional as that. And I really like to keep that emotional, personal connection in all of the work so that it feels a little bit more casual and it feels a little bit more friendly and... Um, it feels a little bit more real, and uh, anything I can do to really kind of inject that in there is usually pretty welcome. And and my clients, for the most part, you know, a huge percentage of them are very open to that and really, really interested to see where where um, that takes us. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, you tell the clients to just trust me, and <laughs> I, I would I would imagine, I mean, that the first couple times you did that, it was sort of a scary thing. I, I sort of pushed with listeners to the show of, of getting kind of professional authority with clients and getting them to trust you, but it is tough in the beginning. So maybe talk a little bit about that and some of the struggles that you've, did you kind of just jump off the, off the cliff and the next client you were like, trust me and listen to me. Or was it kind of like, <laughs> yes, sir, I'll do whatever you say, sir. Kind of for a while. <laughs> it was, um, for a while I was going back and forth when I was younger and I was freelancing and all that stuff. And I was like, I know what I'm doing. I'll take care of this. And then Depending on the client, it would always it would always kind of waver back and forth. But um, I remember there was a turning point for that too. I, I mean, a lot of these things have turning points. You can kind of pinpoint where you you know where you suddenly knew that you had to do this, or you suddenly had to do this. And uh, it was it was towards the tail end of my my old design studio. I started working on a project with Ogilvy Paris, um, developing a, a soft drink um, under the umbrella of Coca Cola that was gonna be kind of European and hopefully international. And it was a pretty big job. And it at up up to that point, it was the biggest job I'd ever worked on. Um, it was a it was an entire ad campaign and font development and all this stuff. And um I remember feeling pretty um pretty nervous about the whole thing because I was jumping into something I'd never done before, especially the pricing of a project that big, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was definitely intimidating, you know? And I'll never forget I was on the phone with the creative director from Ogilvy. I was on the phone with some uh, type designers um, from Monotype. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, very skilled, talented, experienced people on this phone call. And they said to me, you know, we want you to do what you want to do. We trust you. We know that you're going to give us the best result, blah, 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 blah. And I was kind of thinking to myself, I was like, wow, these <laughs> these people trust me? I was like, who am I? Like, no one's ever trusted me to do anything. I always have to fight for it, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, it, after I heard that and I saw how how everything kind of went a little bit more smoothly that way when I when I became more assertive, um, 
I kind of that was it. I was it for me. I was off to the races. It, it, it was just a, it was just a matter of understanding where to pick my words just the right way and and how to establish myself as a as a as a firm, uh, creative force for whatever project I was working on. So, you know, it, it, and it's of course it's developed as I've as I've you know gotten older and worked more and more and more to the point where you know if there's any type of creative conflict or anything, I'll tell the clients, even if, you know, even if it's an internal conflict with the company, I'll tell them, I'll be like, this is, you hired me to do the best job I could do for you, to help you. He said, there's no one else's, um, you know, there's no one else's benefit that I'm looking out for besides you. So I'm trying to give you the best of what I can give you. And I'm here to help you. So as soon as the, you know, little things like that really help to, um, you know, sometimes put some clients at ease or realize that, you know, it's very easy to get lost in the details and the craziness of, of launching big projects. But when they, when they see that there's someone there to hold their hand a little bit and to really help guide them, it makes things a little bit easier. So even if you have to be a little firm and say, you know, trust me, I'm going to take care of you, you know, and then, you know, obviously delivering, um, you're able to build up that self-confidence. And the more you build up that self-confidence and the more you deliver, the more you'll have more of a reputation of giving the clients what they want, even when they don't know that they want it and, and giving them a project that goes easily and something that they can feel relaxed in and it doesn't get so, or it doesn't get more stressful than it already is. So it, it has a lot to do with just the relationships. And again, that's something I think I learned from my dad, where it's just, you know, talking with people and, and, you know, making sure that they feel comfortable and making sure that they understand why you're doing things and, you know, and, and how you're doing it and, and why it's important for them that you do it in one particular way. And, uh, you know, it ha it's, it's, it's vital to maintaining your business, especially if you're a one-man show or if you're a small team. You know, if you're not, if you're not at this huge corporation, you really got to look out for yourself, but you have to look out for your clients too and show them that you, you really do care what happens to them? It's not just a it's not just a paycheck to you. This is you're invested in it as much as they are. Yeah, that's that's good stuff, man. And I think that there's, uh, you know, maybe for people that are working with smaller clients, more local clients or regional clients, they maybe those clients have been burned on people that are just what I would call technicians or people that just know how to make things, but they don't understand things like strategy and creative direction and really trying to kind of keep things on point to reach this common goal. And it's like, oh, I made this because I like it. Right. As opposed to making it for that company's audience or whatever. So it's awesome when you kind of strike up those professional relationships. Right. I do want to talk. I, when I was a kid, I, I I remember I always wanted to draw photorealistic. There was something about it. I remember seeing these, <laughs> I remember seeing these Marvel comic cards that yeah. like they were drawn or illustrated in this. It was like, you know, it was the Hulk, but he was photo real. And it was, in, it was absolutely insane. I was, yeah. uh, you know, it was, it was surreal. And it was almost in my head, I thought, if you can't draw photo real, you're not a good drawer. <laughs> and I couldn't draw photo real. <laughs> so, but I know when I, when I went to art school, I had this awesome art professor. And, and he told me, when I was telling him about wanting to draw photo real, he, he shut me down one time and was like, well, why wouldn't you just go take a <laughs> photograph? <laughs> and, and I was just like, and it was, it made me think for a moment, it was a moment, it was sort of this awesome moment where I began to respect and appreciate different styles of drawing and almost like the imperfections of it. And I think yeah. that your work really reflects this handmade, um, sometimes imperfect style in terms of like little whimsical, you know, you can tell it's handmade. And, you know, in this digital, digitally inundated world, 
What is it, in your opinion, about the style of work that resonates with people so much today? I just think, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's just like everything, everything we do, everything is technology based these days. You know, we, we live in a country where we're lucky enough to have all these, you know, all these things at our fingertips. Um, and, and it's just, you know, we're, we're just, we're just completely covered in technology. There's no, there's nothing that you do that isn't technology based. I mean, I'm at the supermarket and there's touch screens and video screens everywhere. You know, it's like technology is everywhere in every phase of life at this, at this point. Um, and I think that creating something completely by hand and doing it in a way where I, I feel like I've always been, I've always been the type of guy that's been obsessed with clean lines, uh, modern architecture, Swiss, Swiss design. That's, I mean, looking at my work, you may not you may not get that, but um, where I come from, from a design perspective, or or even my history in in terms of what really resonates with me, it's that type of clean modern design, and um, you know, taking that and using that as an influence just to just to make it with my hands, you know, it it, it kind of reveals this whole different angle to what you could be doing, you know, and 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 the less the less I use the computer and the more I used my hand to kind of craft these things, the more natural it felt to me and the more freely I felt I was able to express myself in the style of design that I'd always loved. So even though it wasn't looking exactly like Swiss design or, you know, the, you know, a famous New York city subway map or something like that with Helvetica and clean lines and cool angles and stuff, it was still in the back of my head of this is how you design, except I'm going to take my hand that doesn't draw a straight line or a round circle and just kind of let it go and see what happens with it. So, um, seeing, being able, well, being able to take those two things and put them together has, has really let me kind of find myself as an artist and, and really see where I belong. Um, it's, I, I feel like that's something that people search for for decades and decades and you don't always kind of find it. Maybe it's because you, you're not being honest with yourself about who you are or you're, maybe trying to hit something that's not natural to you. Um, but whatever the case may be, if you're able to kind of pinpoint what I love versus what I want to do versus what I'm able to do and mix them in a way that is unique to you, then, then I think people just see it and they, they understand. They say, wow, this, this, is, this is definitely something I, I appreciate. And it's, it's something I like and it's something I want for, for my business. Yeah, for sure, man. And I think that, you know, with talking about being influenced by Swiss design and, and maybe things like Massimo Vignelli or whatever, that type of thing. You, even though your stuff is hand-drawn, you can still tell that you have an understanding of composition. And I think that's where that influence really comes in, that you can sort of strike this balance between, oh, it looks hand-drawn, and maybe to the untrained eye, that's what it is. But to the trained eye, you still sort of get that there's a strong composition here and good typography and that type of thing. Right, and that's that's kind of what I go after, you know. I mean, I studied so many years on just uh, on actual typography. I mean, I, I was I was dead set on just being a typographer for for some point, you know. But I had also studied architecture. I had studied uh, all sorts of stuff with clean lines and and you know composition, like you said, uh, spatial recognition. All these things where it's important to understand how you can weight certain things, how you can use rhythm to dictate where the eye goes um, and, and to help tell a story, some type of visual story, no matter how short or long it is. Um, 
you know, a lot of that has to go into what you're designing. Um, and you'll see a lot of people who maybe don't have that type of background. It doesn't, even if they're trying to work within the same style as someone uh, similar to them, you can easily tell the difference be between the two because one of them obviously has a clear voice and a clear goal and a pathway to get to that goal. And the other one is just kind of mimicking it. And you're getting like that weird kind of jumble of things that doesn't exactly, that does for some reason, even though the elements look the same, the whole thing doesn't feel the same. And you, you know, a lot of people wouldn't be able to tell why, but to the trained eye, like you were saying, um, you understand it's, it's that kind of storytelling compositional, um, you know, like, omnipresent type of feeling of like this, this is what the design is as opposed to, ah, it should look like this, you know? Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your past, a studio that you ran called 126 Design Studio. Tell us a little bit about that shop and the types of projects that you were working on at the time. And, and I know that you and your partner eventually evolved that into something else. Yeah, I mean that was uh, you know that was really a crash course into into the world of bigger design uh, for me. We um, we we had we had both been working at a studio beforehand, and it was time to kind of give it a shot and and go back onto working in our on our own. And that was about two thousand five, I think. And uh, you know we had a few clients at that point. Streetwear was kind of starting to poke its head out a little bit. So we started working with some local streetwear brands, um, eventually developing them to, to larger brands, which was really nice. Um, and then, you know, here and there, we got a couple of big projects. Um, like I had mentioned that, that Coca-Cola project with Ogilvy, we were also, for some reason, I don't even know how this happened, but we were asked to pitch to redesign or rebrand Technicolor, which was an absolute, uh, mind-bending experience because we were getting a request for proposal to rebrand Technicolor along with some of these other major agencies. And we were just a small studio in New York and it just seemed kind of to come out of left field for us. So a lot of the things that we dealt with there were these um, eye-opening experiences of we don't know as much as we think that we know. Putting together this proposal, it was like, we were scared to design anything. We, we didn't want anyone to steal anything from us. We didn't know <laughs> how to, you know, like we put together this whole proposal and it didn't really show anything. And we got rejected right away. And uh, I just said, you know, I was like, you know, why are we rejected? And they were just like, oh, there just wasn't enough to see. And I just didn't understand that. I didn't understand that for certain jobs, you have to work on spec. It's just kind of the way it is. If you want to do it, these, these are massive projects. Sometimes you just got to put ideas out there and hope that people grab them. And it, I, I didn't really understand the difference between working for money, working to pitch a job or working because someone wants you to work for free. I, I, I kind of learned that one the hard way. So that whole studio experience from about 2005 to the end of 2009, maybe the beginning of 2010, was just like, crash course after crash course after crash course of, of like how not to do things basically. Um, we had a couple of retainers and we started to get a little comfortable and then of course the economy took a nosedive in 2008 and those retainers went away and then we didn't have any money and you know it was just like we didn't know what to do with ourselves. It was like a constant barrage of what the hell is going on you know and it's it just came from trying to do too much too fast and then not holding on to 
you know, our ideals or, or the things that we really wanted to do. It was, you know, it became scary to try and make money and, and, you know, live our lives and all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it, it forced, it forced us to learn a lot about what the hell we were actually doing. And at that point, um, I was just getting married at the time. So I was flat broke. So, you know, the wedding couldn't have come at a better time because people gave us money. So that was nice. (laughs) And, uh, you know, my partner, Matt and I, um, we said, you know, forget about it. Let's take some of these designs that have been, that keep getting rejected. Let's put them on some t-shirts and see what happens. You know, maybe we can make some money for Christmas and, you know, finally buy our family some Christmas presents for once. And, um, you know, we did it. We kind of piggybacked, uh, a couple of t-shirt designs onto another job we were doing and we sold them and, and they ended up picking up. So, at that point, we were just like, you know what? Let's start designing things that we like and see how people respond to them as opposed to trying to design things that we like and keep, you know, and then having to fit them to what a client's idea of good is. So we started doing that and it became, it, it became this thing that taught us how to be more of ourselves and how to sell ourselves without selling out. You know, it wasn't just like we're going to design this because we hope that it's going to sell a ton of things. Instead, it was, we're going to design this because we love it and we hope you love it too. You know, and learning that difference, I think was vital to um, teaching me how to pivot my, my business sense and, and how to become more aggressive and, and show people, this is what I think you should be doing as opposed to what can I do for you? You know, it's, it's, it was that, it was a very subtle difference, but, um, getting involved with that and creating a brand and creating product for a brand and then seeing a positive reaction to that gave me a lot more confidence as well to kind of really start being myself and, and putting more of myself out there and, and not worrying so much about whether or not it was going to pay the bills and worrying more about if people will respond positively to it and how I can use that to further, you know, you know, expand my career and do bigger and better things. Right, right. And, you know, I think that it's an interesting thing where you realize that you don't have to do client work. You can do other things. And, if, uh, you know, from a product perspective, and I sort of have this mentality where, um, you know, we're, we're like ship builders. Like we build ships for mm-hmm. other people as clients and, and like somebody built Christopher Columbus's ship and then like he sailed the ocean blue and got famous. Right. Where, exactly. Whereas like we can build our own ships. Now we have the capabilities of, of doing that. So what was it like yeah. with that transition between client to product where now you're having to look at, um, manufacturing, you know, the actual products themselves as far as getting them printed and, and that type of thing. Dude, let me tell you, man. I don't know if I ever really got too deep into this story, but I can give you a quick rundown. It was uh, to go from it. First of all, it was a really tough transition at first because we kind of had to start saying no to things and spend more time on creating our own product and creating our own brand, and then figuring out all the stuff that you don't really think about when you're like, let's create a brand. You know, that all the logistics behind it. So when we finally were able to phase it out. It started us off in a weird position because um, I was handling one side of the business and Matt was handling the other. And and right away, we already were disconnected because we weren't working on it totally 100% together. So Matt had a little bit more of a head start on it than I did because I was handling the rest of the design stuff. Um, And then when we were finally able to come together, it was just like, you know, we had to really work together. And then eventually we caught up with each other and we were doing the same thing. And that's when... 
the company really started firing on all cylinders. Um, but then all of a sudden we start getting bigger retail um, projects where we were doing, you know, big, you know, buyers from bigger stores would come in and order more from the seasons and we would have to start producing more product. And then, you know, it turns into a, then it turns into a matter of economics and how are we going to fund this whole thing? Because the money that was coming in was only so much, but bigger and bigger orders weren't being able to be paid by smaller orders that were, you know, previously coming in. So it became this whole thing. You know, we got involved with some investment investment people. And then uh, one of the major problems for us was that we got involved with a big chain. Um, we were selling in over 70 stores across the country. And right when we were about to kind of get paid from them and kind of move on and use that payment to help propel the next line to an even higher scale, like we were looking big, we were looking to the future at this point, that company declared bankruptcy and we lost six figures worth of uh, money um, that was wow. going to come in and help and help us, you know, bring the brand to the next level. So when you're talking over $100,000 worth of uh, goods just lost with no way to recoup it and, and, um, and uh, you know, this legal battle that's still, <laughs> that is, as far as I know, is still raging on to this day and just years and years now, um, you know, it's it scared us and it kind of almost put us in a really tough spot where we couldn't maintain anything past there because we were all of a sudden we were on top of the world and then we were starting to dig ourselves out of a hole that we never expected to ever be in. Um, and that, that put us in a really, really bad spot and then that made me rethink running my own brand and you know producing my own product because all of a sudden now I'm in charge of all this overhead that I can't afford and uh, it, it, it you know scared the hell out of me and we had to figure out a way to get out of it and we worked on the brand for another couple of years trying to save it and it just you know bad luck after bad luck I mean Hurricane Sandy came in and flooded our shop and ruined all of our stuff. Oh man! And uh, you know we tried to we tried to do some new trade shows and stuff, but all of our all of our props and everything that we used to use at trade shows to really set us apart from everyone else was gone. So any any kind of show that we did after that was a pretty blank table with some you know whatever we had left that wasn't destroyed, and it really just put a damper on everything, you know. And it was just like bad luck after bad luck, and finally. I, we we kind of decided to kind of let it fade out, and we you know I think it was last year we tried to give it one last push, but at that point you know we had we had finally just kind of like paid everybody back, and we we got back to zero, and it just the whole thing just felt like it had a tainted vibe to it, and the two of us were already doing different things at that point too, because you know we had to move on, we couldn't stick with it forever, otherwise, I mean I <laughs> I don't know man I'd be living you know, in a paper box somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so the we, literal starting art. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to, we had to do something. And, and, uh, you know, that, that kind of put me back into client work, you know, maybe in, um, 2000 and well, I, st I was doing client work again, maybe in 2011, you know, a year after I kind of got back into it just as a side thing. But then, you know, a year or two after that, I was just, I was going, all the way back into client work and, um, you know, made it a point to keep my overhead as low as possible for the foreseeable future. So that kind of thing didn't happen again, especially since, you know, I got a family and a mortgage to worry about now. It's not something that I, you know, I really wanted to do, but you know, yeah. And um, your wife probably wouldn't want massive piles of 
like no, t-shirts no, and I, merchandise <laughs> hanging no, around now. We, we still we still got a lot of that in the basement. It, dry, it definitely drives it nuts. <laughs> well, and the crazy thing is, is, is you have to pay taxes on that stuff, like stuff oh, that's yeah. not sold. It's crazy how that works, mm-hmm. and it's like how how can anybody really, you know, stay in business with that type, that type of thing? It's like it's you're so paying taxes on the stuff you haven't sold yet. <laughs> yeah, it's so scary. I mean, it's just like, where is this money coming from that that the government wants from me? You know, right, like, right, right. We were we were hit with like the cold hard truth, and it was scary. So you know, we kind of stepped back from that for a little bit, and then you know, every now and again, I kind of st- I brought I brought Contino brand out, and that was that was fully funded by me, and and I'm working on this new notebook brand called Tomahawk Tomahawk right now, and it's kind of like the ideal pocket notebook, um, and it's it's I'm not doing anything that I can't afford to do. You know, so right. I'm, I'm staying away from investment opportunities. I'm staying away from all that because I got to, you know, it left a bad taste in my mouth and it, it was a little scary. And thank God I was able to get out of it. But who knows, you know, the next time something like that happens, number one, I know better. And I at least I know the questions to ask going into it. And number two, you know, I don't really want to deal with uh, that scary type of scenario again because I don't really have much hair left in my head to begin with. So <laughs> I don't think I can handle it anymore. <laughs> well, and, and I think, you know, Contino brand is, is uh, it's directly tied to your name, right? Like your family yeah. name. It's, yeah. it's something that, I mean, maybe that's something that even your daughter could take over in the long run if she wanted to. It's, um, you know, and I think that you having built this personal brand so big where people people know who John Contino is, right? Like, and so obviously it's a good association when when you associate that with the with the apparel brand, and, and that allows you to kind of scratch that itch a little bit and do that type of work without. Well, that's I, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I remember having a conversation with my dad um, when when all the kind of bad stuff was happening with CXXVI, and I told him I was like, you know, I think. I'm going to start going to go out and go back on my own and start working under my own name again because if I can establish equity under my name as opposed to a company name then you know if if the shit hits the fan I can still have myself to fall back on and I know that I won't let myself down. You know what I mean? Like a company right. my company could let me down because oh, there could be things out of my hands that I just can't control but myself as the product I know will never let me down. Because it's me, you know? Right. So I started to try and build my name up uh, again from where I was, you know, a couple of years prior and, and really have people, you know, understand that me as a person could be this this thing or this force um, as opposed to a clothing company, which has could have similar ties but can fall a lot harder than a person could fall, I think, anyway. Right. So I started doing that. I started building myself up again. So then, then there was CXXVI and then there was me, and they, they were two separate entities, and I liked it better that way because I knew that I had a plan B again um, in case anything bad happened. And then it you know, eventually did happen, but my plan B, I was building up and building up, and it became plan A, and I was able to live off of that. And it, it really it saved me, and it saved you – know, our mine and my wife's lives at that point. Yeah, that's cool. Well, and and I think that there's this sort of thread that goes through all this and and I think that with creative people I personally often feel like there's a lot of gut and intuition that plays a big role in what we do. Like the types yeah, of decisions that we true. make professionally and a lot of this stuff it's not tangible. You have to trust your gut. So right. you can definitely see how much your own intuition and gut sort of plays into all these things that you've done professionally, whether that's starting a new brand or, or doing any kind of experiential 
projects. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so funny. I mean, when you look back at it, that's exactly what it was. But in in the, all those moments in the past, you know, ten to fifteen years that I was dealing with a lot of these things, it's sometimes it's like, do I listen to my gut? Do my do I follow my gut? Is it you know, is my intuition worth anything to me or to anyone? Like, does it make sense? Do I even know enough? Like, have I been around long enough to understand? Do I have enough experience? All these things really play into it. And you kind of fight yourself um, for a long time until you're able to really trust your own instincts. And now at this point, I can I can safely say that I trust my own instincts and I can do what I need to do to survive. And I know I'm going to do a good job at it and then I'm not going to let myself fail. So, um being through all of this that I've been through in, you know, 10 to 15 to almost 20 years worth of this, it's, I mean, I know, I know that I'll always, you know, have something to fall back on. I'll always be able to, to make something that can put me in a place that I need to be, you know, and it, unfortunately it took a couple of really bad occurrences to kind of show me that, but you know what? I mean, I, I, I can't I can't even say I regret any of it because I learned a hell of a lot and and I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't go through all that stuff. Yeah, and I think that it's it's awesome that you you shared those stories with us because so many people that are successful like yourself, they tend to put up this facade. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. like yeah, I, I was I, I came out of college and then all of a sudden now I'm famous <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Or doing like work for yeah. Wyden and Kennedy or something like that. And, and, you know, it's, 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 I think people hearing the story and hearing the grind, it, it, it humanizes, uh, people. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing. It, it sort of inspires other people. Well, and so with this being a, to kind of wrap up here with this being a sports related audience and, and niche, you kind of mentioned sports inspiring your work. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, is there, what, is there something specific either culturally or visually that you draw from sport? in your own work because it definitely lends itself well to a sports aesthetic. Yeah. I think um, sports in general, I think, are is probably my primary, you know, foundational, inspirational type of um, vault. You know, that's something I always pull from. And it's, number one, I've always been a huge baseball fan, huge Yankees fan. I played baseball my whole life. I was always... I was always obsessed, you know, and even as a kid, I always loved the, you know, the first day when you got your jerseys was the happiest day of my life. You know, I loved putting on that jersey. I loved wearing that brand new hat. Everything was such a big, important thing to me in terms of the visual aesthetics. I mean, I loved the game too, but that that extra part was always something that stuck with me so much. Um, And then once I really started to learn more about the game and learning about the history of the game, and especially growing up through the 80s, 90s, and whatever, like, you see the uniforms change, you see the branding change, you see, you know, like, the like the late 70s Astros go from, you know, the, the, the stripes across the chest to, you know, modernizing to today and, and, and getting a little bit more traditional within the past couple of years, and you, you get to watch all that stuff, and you're enamored with it, with baseball cards, and um, all that cool stuff, all, especially I remember when I was a kid and um, the new uh, new era hats really started to become really popular with, you know, our age group because they were fitted hats and they were just like the authentic, 
on-field hats, and that was never anything I had, mostly maybe because I was a kid or or because they were a little bit too expensive for me at the time. But, you know, there was no more snapbacks. There was no more gas station Yankee hats with, like, like Coca-Cola <laughs> written on the side, you know. This yeah. is, like, legit Major League logo on the back of a fitted hat, fits my head, green underbrim, you know, like, real deal. Don Mattingly wore this hat. I'm going <laughs> to wear this hat. You know, um, awesome stuff. And, and it's... The, just that whole type of like the baseball uniform, the, the 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 thing that you go out there and you wear every day that you present yourself in was something that was so influential to me and so important um, that it's carried through everything. And like I said, the more I learned about the history, the more I learned about the lettering that went into stuff. The more I learned about the illustration work, the branding work, how the naming happened. You know, like like learning about. Even even when I started to learn more about the Yankees and, you know, how they were the Orioles first and then they became the Highlanders and then they became the Yankees and then and then it just became this, you know, massive, you know, dynasty of a of a sports franchise. And it had all this like weird little funky history of a team that really didn't belong to begin with. Um, and, and all these kinds of things that you start to pick up on and little nuances and everything that you'll see and the posters and the songs and the bubblegum packs and all these kinds of things really just like they they just they snowball into an amazing blend of like creative chaos that you could just like you just close your eyes and just start picking at stuff. You're like, I love that, I love that, I love that. That logo's awesome. Yeah. I love how they integrated the baseball into the logo. Like the old time like like the Phillies logo from the eighties, I loved because the the P would swoop around and it would turn into the baseball and I used to draw it constantly. You know, I just thought it was so cool. Um there's so much of that stuff that is such is so important to branding and design, um, and it's especially to me as 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 a as an artist that I just you can't ignore it. And then of and then I mean I'm not even mentioning football and basketball and any of the other sports right. that all had their own cool stuff too. That was just one of them, you know. So once you see that, and then you start exploring the other the other leagues and the other sports, I mean it's like a it's a nonstop library of amazing inspiration that is just you know i mean some of the greatest designers in the history of design worked on these things you know i right. mean these these are these are I, I mean if you if you talk about maybe the most recognizable brands in the world i mean one of the things that you'll say is that and the interlocking ny from the yeah Yankees. absolutely and, you yeah. know i mean that's how could anyone say that that's not one of the most you know beautifully um smart designed brands in the history of design you know it's just it's so powerful it's you can't right. ignore it yeah and the, and the cultural and sort of tribal nature of it all and i think that no matter what you know no matter if a person likes sports or not it's it's ingrained into so many cultures like even if you go back and you look at you know i don't know like a, a new year's or some kind of big milestone time-wise and it's like oh here are the things that happened in news or whatever during like 1980 yeah. whatever and it's like a lot of stuff that's integrained in that is sports because it's a bit like people yeah. remember where they were at at that time they're watching it with their dad Absolutely. their grandfather passed away that kind of thing and that's yep. what i really love about it you know yep. being able to get that stuff out and and create those experiences well let me ask you what what would your uh dream sports related project be if you could work on something if you could just pick it and do it oh man it's such a hard question Cause it's like, if you asked if you asked me that, and I was being crazy, I would be like, I want to brand the New York Yankees, but obviously I don't want to because everything I love about them, I wouldn't want to touch. I would want to yeah. have nothing to do with because <laughs> that's what I love, you know. 
Right. So, I, I mean, maybe it's just branding a sports team in general. Maybe it's some type of some type of team that need. I, I mean, here's one. I had the I had the opportunity to uh, do the branding for the New York City Football Club um, that just started up this year, and you know, I pitched and everything went really well, and you know, it didn't work out. Um, there's always there's always a reason why it doesn't work out. But being able to be brought in and and having a team say, you know, we want you to use your expertise as a native New Yorker to come up with a symbol that's going to represent this New York team as as a team for the people and, and something that's like recognizable to people who grew up here and all that kind of thing. Um, that would have been great. I mean, soccer is not even my thing, but to, to do that would have been would have been great. Something like that would be really um, fantastic. I would love to do anything like that, really. I mean, football, baseball, basketball. I'm 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 into any one of those, um, and you know I I mean some of the other sports too. I mean I'm not I'm not a huge hockey fan, but uh, I'm not going to turn it down. You know any type of <laughs> no doubt, any, yeah. <laughs> any type of sports branding I think is just such an amazing opportunity. You get to do so many different things. Plus it ties into apparel design. It turns into merchandising. All these things that I have so much experience with that it just feels like I'd be able to flex a lot of muscles all in one shot with one project and really tie everything together. So. If that opportunity ever presents itself, I I will I will grab it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, uh, lastly, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we, I, we kind of on my end, and I apologize, had some audio <laughs> issues to to start. But where can listeners reach out to you online and Twitter website that type of thing? Yeah, I mean you could uh, you could check me out at johncontino.com or. Um, you know, Instagram, Twitter, LO, Facebook, all those things, at John Conti, you know, it's just, uh, they're, they're all the same. So whatever social network there is, you could just at John Contino and I'll be there. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm around and, you know, if anyone ever has any questions, I'm always, I'm always open to answering whatever and starting conversations with people. I love, I love having that type of uh, dialogue with, with people who are like-minded or even want to be like-minded and just want to learn a little bit. So, I'm always open, man. So if anyone ever wants to hit me up, I'm around. For sure, man. That's awesome. And be sure to mention your podcast too, because I know that you're definitely no stranger to this medium. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> two friends of mine, uh, uh, Brent Meyer and Dan Berkowitz, uh, and I have started a podcast called Scotch Time. And um, originally, originally uh, Dan and Brent were starting it, and it was going to be kind of design-focused, and they were going to kind of talk about uh, different scotches at the beginning and uh, when I joined on, I don't drink, so they they were like, "We got to change the name," and I said, "Nah, let's just keep it. <laughs> we'll just run with it." So we talk about design, technology, and just kind of like general life and and ball breaking and stuff like that. Since you know we know each other for so long, so it's it's kind of fun. It's very lighthearted, but you know it's uh, you know we touch on all the stuff that um, other people you know in our field would still be interested in. So it's kind of the kind of the jokester's version of a design podcast i think very cool man well john i appreciate your time i know you're speaking at the uh pro sports design conference next month in houston major level creative connect i'm actually uh i'm gonna be down there too moderating a panel awesome. and recording a show so uh looking forward to getting to hang out with you and todd episode four guest todd Ray. yeah sure todd todd's awesome he's the man i mean that's the guy that you yeah. that's the guy that you look up to right there <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, nah, he's 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 awesome. Yeah. He's always fun to hang out with. All right, Adam, I really appreciate uh, you having me on. It's been a blast. Yeah, man, for sure. I I, I very much appreciate your time. Thanks. Sir. My next.
my next guest is going to be Jeremy Darlow. Jeremy is the director of brand marketing for Adidas football and baseball. He's been at Adidas for seven years working in digital marketing before moving to football and baseball. He's also the author of a book called Brands Win Championships, which is an educational resource for college athletics programs on how to market and promote their athletic brands. Big thanks again to John Contino for giving us some, t- some of his time. Again, as he mentioned, you can follow him on Twitter and everywhere else uh, at John Contino. You may have noticed that there wasn't a halftime episode this week, and part of that is I needed to realign the episode numbers so that our special episode 50 guests will be um, a guest episode rather than a halftime episode. And then also simply because I needed to take a break from the rigorous week of client work. So in the meantime, you can listen to those and other episodes at makersofsport.com slash episodes. Lastly, please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes. Hit the five star and write about your experience with the show. If you've gotten value from myself or John on on today's show or any other guests on previous shows, then please share the podcast, rate the content so that others can discover it for themselves. As always, ratings or likes on Stitcher SoundCloud or wherever you happen to be listening to this are accepted as well. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter and Dribble. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week.